0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. So if you've been following me over the years with my first incarnation, The Time Machine, this man was a guest on The Time Machine, so I am glad to have him back on. You know him as the man with the Mac attack, responsible for a little AM station out of Southern California, which gave us rap 24-7. If you grow up in Southern California, then you know the station that I'm talking about. AM Stereo 1580, K-D-A-Y K-Day. So let's give it up for Mr. Greg Mack. Welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Hey.
1: Joel, thanks for having me on, man. It's always fun being on with you. This is the second time we did something, right?
0: Yes, sir. This is the second time I had you on. It was like around 07, 08 when I was doing the Time Machine at WAG 103.1 FM. So it was a pleasure to have you back on to the new, bigger and better extension of the Time Machine, which is Beyond the Album Cover.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, man. Thanks. I appreciate it.
0: Not a problem. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. What made you want to get into the crazy, exciting world of broadcasting?
1: It's so funny because when I go speak at colleges and universities uh, in the broadcasting class. And so the first thing I ask them when I get there is, is there any way to talk you out of this? (laughs) Because it is a crazy business. It's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, if you're going to be successful, it's, it's like the music business almost. You know, you're constantly, uh, I wouldn't say touring, but you're constantly out there if you want to succeed, getting to know the people that you are trying to reach. And, uh, you know, given there's so many stations that say, you know, we're giving you what you want, we're playing what you want, blah, 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 and nothing could be further from the truth. So if you're going to succeed in the business and you want to be in the business, understand that you really have to give them all of you. And over the years, you know, going on 45 years now in radio, uh, I've, I've given, you know, a lot of it. I still got some more to give. <laughs> I'm trying to reach the big five before I decide what I'm going to do. But, you know, I'm having fun. And so when you're having fun doing what you do, it's really not work.
0: Right. They say you love what you do. You never have to work a day in your life. And also for newbies, if you want to get into broadcasting, do some sales.
1: <laughs> yeah i uh it's funny you should say that because i was doing an interview yesterday and uh you know i was i was explaining that you pull up to a radio station and you'll see a jaguar and a mercedes and you will see a toyota and a nissan the salespeople are driving the jaguars and mercedes okay <laughs> and they actually get to go home at a decent hour that's where the money's at but you know being a dj it's It's one of those things where you're out front, you're the face of everything that's going on and you are the success that brings the money to the salespeople that, you know, they get the money, but you get the glory.
0: Mm, And if you do sales land, a car dealership or a nightclub, because those are (laughs) money makers, especially if you get a big national ad account.
1: Yeah, exactly. You got to go out there and get Coca-Cola and McDonald's. And uh, cause nightclubs, especially during the pandemic was not the place, but I do understand what you're saying. You know, you, you really wanna get anybody that's gonna spend a lot of money with you, it doesn't matter.
0: Mm-hmm. And also if you could do broker airtime, that would be better. For those of you that don't know what broker airtime is that's when, let's say if you wanted to do an hour or two of whatever you want, you pay the station X amount of dollars and say, hey, I want to reserve one to two hours on your station for this. And you can pretty much do uh-huh. whatever you want, and also you could probably throw in some liner reads for sponsorships. And this hour was brought to you by JM Electronics, located on blah 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 Street at Anytown USA.
1: I think that on the smaller and medium cities, you can do that, and the larger ones, it's a little harder. They do allow it, but it's 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 a little more difficult. <laughs> you know, it, it's not just about money; it's also got to fit within the format. You don't necessarily want to have, you know, a country and western car dealer on a hip hop station. It doesn't fit sometimes. But if you need the money, you got to do what you got to do.
0: Right. Yeah, you got to figure out who's your demo that you're targeting, who you're trying to reach, because yeah. like you stated, if you're working in a small or medium market, you can get away with brokered airtime and it's normally mom uh-huh. and pop owned, and you're going to have a small staff with board ops running syndication or local high school sports if you have that set up.
1: That's right. How did you get started? How long have you been in the business?
0: I've been in the business, it will be 17 years for me. Um, I started when wow. I was in college at a WAG FM with the time machine and just cold calling folks doing interviews, got out of it for a little bit, dabbled in other things, you know, picked up podcasting about three years ago with this one to get my passion back going for broadcasting after leaving the business. And it's been a success ever since. And I'm happy that uh, I'm getting a lot of good feedback and having you on and just looking to keep that momentum going from 17 years. What
1: What forward. is the passion? Is the passion the money? Is it the women? Is it the notoriety? What is the pa- What drives you?
0: What drives me is the love because I grew up you know watching video soul soul train arsenio and just figured i just wanted to have a platform to be able to share my love and knowledge of music to people who may not know about certain artists or certain things and i take what i do seriously and i look at it as kind of like what quest love supreme is doing but just on a smaller smaller scale <laughs>
1: All right, well, it's good to see young men like you doing your thing in the business, man.
0: Yes, sir, I'm try- trying to. So for those of you that don't know, K-Day, K-D-A-Y, the D-A-Y and day for your calls. Remember, if you are west of the Mississippi, your stations are gonna start with K. If you're east, you're gonna start with W with the exception of KDK up in Pittsburgh. So day meant that if you were AM station, you were a daytimer, which meant that you were on sunup, It had to
1: sign off at night. AM stations, you know, they have uh, directional. Some AMs are directional, meaning that they need about six towers to get the signal to point in the right direction. Some are single towers. 1580 K-Day was directional, which meant that uh, during the day, we pretty much covered everywhere in LA. At nighttime, you may not get us in Long Beach, but you could listen clear as day in Hawaii. It was... uh, Uh, It was a different signal at nighttime shot out right across the Pacific Ocean. We had a lot of cruise ships that liked us.
0: (laughs) Uh, I bet. So you came in, I believe, 83, correct, from Houston.
1: Yeah, I was in Magic 102 in Houston. And by the time I got to K-Day, I had been in radio probably seven years. And, uh, you know, they were kind of in the bottom of the heap when I got there and uh thank god they allowed me to flip it and start playing the music that that I liked and that the people liked which was a, a lot of hip hop and uh you know the ratings went straight up man we just exploded it was uh I'm proud to say I created what is the what's now called CHR rhythmic format uh I didn't really have a name for it I just say we're playing what you know we're playing the hits And so we also, a lot of people don't know this, started uh, the the new form of music called freestyle music. At that time, we called it high energy. But when I say freestyle, I'm talking Lisa Lisa, Cover Girls, Trineer, Debbie Deb, uh, Stevie B, a lot of those artists, which still sell out 30,000 seat arenas today, uh, that all started at 1580 K-Day. So we had hip hop, freestyle, R&B, We had it all mixed together, just playing all, you know, nothing but the hits. And a lot of of great artists, a lot of your favorite artists ever got their start uh, at 1580 K-Day with us.
0: So how did the playlist vary from when you were in Houston to K-Day? Because you got to remember, folks, this was the early 80s where rap really wasn't getting played in the mainstream hours and radio. It would be what we call daypart, day part, where they were only regulated mm-hmm. to late night or overnights to where it wouldn't affect the ratings.
1: Yeah, you had a uh, Magic 102 was starting to play some hip hop. They would play a lot of Sugar Hill, uh, Run DMC, Curtis Blow. Uh, but it was at night, you know, you wouldn't hear it during the day. And you also have to understand that there's a lot of things going against rap at that time. The the big record stores wouldn't even carry rap warehouse tower records. They wouldn't touch it. Uh, there was tons of black radio stations that wouldn't play rap, which is, you know, a lot of people find surprising, but there was uh, this image of rappers as being below them. And I never felt Still to this day, don't feel there's anybody below me, and there sure as hell ain't nobody above me other than the Lord. So, um, uh, I just had this attitude of, you know, what if people like it, you know, just because you're playing hip hop, they're not going to come through the radio and rob your house, <laughs> you know. And uh, the thing about hip hop is that it was actually saying something, you know, it was fun, uh, it had a message, had a good beat, most of the Hip hop was a reflection of R&B because, as you know, they sampled a lot of music back then. And it eventually came in full circle when the r and artists started using the rappers on their songs. So it kind of worked out to where everybody was, you know, adapting and stuff. But, yeah, there was a lot of headwinds, politicians, parents. Why are you playing that stuff? Uh, I liked it. And so, you know, what can I say?
0: Yeah, parents, politicians, anybody that was of an older generation didn't understand because if you look at radio, especially urban or at the time they were called black or soul, a lot of the Mm PDs or upper management were of that generation that came up with Motown, R&B, very polished, very well presented, and they felt rap Mm -hmm. was the opposite and we don't wanna dirty up the nice room that don't nobody go in, if you know what I mean.
1: There you go. And so, you know, it just, uh, when I first got there I created what's called today. Even today, they, a lot of stations use the traffic jam, you know, which they play on your drive home. But that was something that me and Dr. Dre started back in uh, 1983. Him and DJ Yalla were my DJs when I first got to LA because I was trying to create my own DJ group. And they got so popular that it didn't last more than a year. And so I had to create my own group called the Mixmasters, mm-hmm. And we kind of took off from there with uh, DJ Tony G, uh, Rodney, and, or not Rodney, o, but Joe Cooley, uh, and Gemini, Henry G. Uh, those were my first guys. And we just took off from there.
0: Now with Dr. Dre and Yellow, were they st- were they in World Class Wrecking Crew when they were on KDL, or Was this after World Class Wrecking Crew?
1: This was during World Class Wrecking Crew, and they were doing a little club in Compton called Dudos. And Dudos held, I guess, about 500 people or something. But man, we'd do our live broadcast over there, and that place be packed. It would be jumping. Right next door to Dudos was another place called Skateland. Skateland, we could, you know, put a few thousand people in there which we did on multiple occasions but those were uh areas of the blood Crips, and so we had to do another area of la called uh, world on wheels uh or i said blood crips the skate land and dudos were bloods and world on wheels was the crip area so that way we you know showed everybody hey look we're we're down with you we're not down with you as far as being in gangs but we're down with you uh, and then we did a little roller rink out in the Reseda area called skate Land, or not skate Land. that was uh skate, it was another skating rink out that way. And that was for the Hispanics, uh, you know, that wouldn't come over into the other areas. And then we did a club out in uh, Santa Monica, it was called 321 Club, that was for the white people that wouldn't go to any of the other clubs. It was very segregated, you got to understand. And then there was a club downtown. That's where we started the freestyle scene uh, called Casa Camino Real. And the Casa uh, was neutral territory. You would get a mixture of all different races at the Casa, which we broadcast live there and have about three or four thousand people out there every Friday. And we also began recording our what we call high energy show uh, back then at the venue, because when we did it at the radio station, when we started, we'd have five or six people. After about a month, we had a hundred people at the radio station, and the general manager came came down there one night. He said, "What the hell is going on?" And so we had to move it to the casa, and so we taped it over there. Man, I get to rattling on. I can tell you some history. I'm sorry if I'm no, I'm no, going no, all no, no. This
0: is what we live for <laughs> on the album cover. Now, yeah. I didn't know about skating culture being huge in LA until I saw the United Skates documentary on HBO, and like how you mentioned about the different skater rinks being blood and crypt territory. DJ yellow was Mm -hmm. saying the same thing and how one crew wouldn't go to the other spot because it was the rival gang spot, but they eventually found a spot where it would be neutral to wear no colors.
1: Yeah, that was the casa. Um, Yeah. I don't know how to explain it other than the fact that the gangs had a lot of respect for us. We didn't have uh, too many issues uh, at all. And, you know, they would usually tell us earlier in the day if there's going to be a problem. And, you know, they would just simply say, you know, don't go outside tonight around 11 o'clock. Okay, cool. <laughs> it was kind of like that. Um, you know, they would, they would call me all the time and, and tell me about, you know, things that were going on in the community. Some good, some not so good but they always had an explanation. Gangs back then had a lot more respect. By that, I mean, uh, if you got in trouble with them, it was because you did something, you know, whereas nowadays it's, you know, it's an initiation. There's no, there's no respect like it used to be. And, uh, you know, we, we knew the, the neighborhoods very well. We went off into neighborhoods where people wouldn't dare go, even today. And we'd go, you know, hand out prizes, shirts, bumper stickers, uh, food, them. You know, I was, I felt just as comfortable with those people as I did the people in the boardroom. You know, I could hang out with the with the gang members and then go meet with the CEOs. It didn't bother me. I guess I was kind of naive. You know, being a country boy from Texas, you always look for the good in everybody. And I think that they picked up on that, that I was naive to, uh, you know, the nonsense. And uh, they kind of looked looked up to me like a father figure. And, it, you know, it was reciprocated both ways.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like you stated back in the day, a lot of the gangs, they had respect for Those that were doing good in the community, they made sure you were straight. And if you were in athletics, had any type of talent, they would give you a pass and say, no, 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 they're good. Leave them alone. You don't Mm -hmm. need to be out here doing this. You need to either stay in the court, stay on the field, stay in the books, because you're going to get out of here.
1: Yeah, it was more respectful. I think that after the uh, riots, um, you know, back in the 70s that... uh, the gang members took it upon themselves to start making sure that people got food and, you know, they took care of people. That's why I say the respect comes in. They didn't, they weren't just gangbanging. They were trying to give a better life to not just their family, but all, all black families and Hispanic families, people of color. Uh, and that's what it was about back then. Uh, it has, you know, dissolved into something else uh, now.
0: Mm, definitely totally different. Now, this is a broadcasting technical question. When you all would do your live remotes from the various uh, areas, did you all use a Marty or a Comrex?
1: Neither. Uh, what we did is every time I was going to be live at a place, and it would take about a month to do it, I'd have to call the phone company, and they would have to go out there and insert a special broadcast line Uh at the place of location and so i would have at any given time four or five lines up around town upon which i had to pay for it, not the radio station k didn't uh, allow me to to have them do it uh and then i also became their biggest advertiser for years because i had to pay to promote these events the station didn't want to put up the money now once we have those lines installed uh all it is is simply taking uh When you get there we had a little uh, thing that our engineer had made and we just bam snap it in from the the phone line and bam snap it into the turntables and the microphone or the mixer overall and you know we were live on the air and so when we would do our live broadcasts you would have major artists i mean i had run dmc live on the air of course, my, my boys Dre and Yala and NWA, uh, LL Cool J, uh, you know Run DMC, Houdini, Fat Boys, Queen Latifah, the list goes on and on and on. Not only did you hear them, we didn't record it. I mean, we recorded it, but when we did it, it was live. So if somebody accidentally said an F word or an S word, it was live on the radio. And you just don't hear that kind of entertainment live on the radio anymore. I wish some station would, especially now that they have delays, as you know. Um, but man, to hear your favorite artist. Could you imagine even in today's world if baby or Megan Thee Stallion were live on the air? How exciting that would sound. Yeah. So that was
0: the excitement that we had going on. Yeah, because I know your station was appointment listening for teens in and around Southern California. They had their tape decks ready to record and they were getting passed around in schools, probably getting sold at swap meets and it was currency out in the streets.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We, you know, Dre and Yella, they used to take the mixes they did for me, the traffic jams, and they would actually go press them up and take them out to uh, the swap meet. You know, at the rhodium swap meet and sell them out so fast, people were lined up to buy them. Uh, The mom and pop record stores, because the major stores wouldn't carry the music, the mom and pop stores were coming up. I mean, they were making bank. And, uh, you know, it created a way for the kids to get out of the neighborhood they had an outlet. They knew that if they could put together a good record, Greg Mack was going to play it. Greg Mack was going to play it just because it was good. Not because there was any payola or nothing, just because it was good. And so they saw a way out. And so I always tell people, because they're like, you know, all these people you helped, they're either millionaires or billionaires. Do you feel, you know, like you should be rich or something? No. You know, I, I feel like I was a conduit for God to give these kids uh, a way out and, uh, yeah, I would like to to have a little more than <laughs> checking account, don't get me wrong, but I'm more proud of what these guys have accomplished and what we started being a hip hop radio station. Now you see people like Jay-Z in the, you know, in the billionaire area and uh, Kanye West and uh, what we created has come a long way. So I'm real. I'm, every time I see one of these guys become a millionaire, billionaire, I just start smiling. It's great.
0: Yeah, I had a chance uh years ago to interview uh, Jerry Heller before he passed. And we were talking about the importance of McCola and how a lot of those early West Coast artists would take their records over to Macola to get them pressed up and to get them going and get them out there. So can we talk about the importance of McCola in the history of uh, West Coast hip hop?
1: Yeah, I did speak to Jerry probably a couple of weeks before he we passed. Uh, we were talking about the the old days McCola was or could have been the Motown of music, of hip hop. I I mean, everybody that came out of the West Coast went to McCullough. Now, the reason they went to McCullough is because McCullough would press the records real cheap. And, uh, you know, all of the guys back then, they would press their own stuff and distribute it until, you know, one stops became more prevalent. But Jerry and uh, another gentleman by the name of Maury Alexander, who was his business partner, I used to laugh at them. i said, y'all just camping out. Y'all trying to see. Basically what they were doing is every song that I would play that was a big hit, and they were over at uh, McCullough pressing it up, Jerry and Maury would be over there to talk to them. Let us manage you. Let us manage you. So they were managing all of the big groups that come through there. That's where Easy met Jerry and uh, LA Dream Team, Tone uh uh Egyptian Lover. Uh, and so they were managing them. I was playing them. McCola was printing them. Don McMillan, bless his heart, uh, you know, he brought a service. And I think that the only reason that they're not there now is because uh, there was just as many records going out the back door as the front. And uh, by that, I mean, there was some pressing going on that the artists weren't getting paid for. And so their trust was lost with the company. Otherwise, that company would still be here. It would be one of the biggest, it'd be bigger than Def Jam and anybody
0: else. Right, and 1580 KDAY, first radio station to play rap 24-7, very revolutionary for its time because it was taking what was going on in New York on WBLS and on KISS with Mr. Magic and Red Alert, respectively, and just playing rap 24-7 instead of being regulated to only two to three hours of the night, maybe on a Friday or a Saturday
1: yeah those are good friends of mine Mr. Magic uh, Marley Marle. Um, you know that whole scene out there um, was happening as a matter of fact when I used to bring some of their people out to LA uh, Bismarcky, uh, Roxanne Shantae, there was a couple of people that used to always come with them and hang out with us and I wasn't really sh- sure I kind of knew I got to know Big Daddy Kane because he was one of them and uh, I kept encouraging him Kane you know Cause he was the one writing, you know, the hits. I said, man, why don't you rap? And and Kane was like really shy. Yeah. Well, you know, Uh, next thing I know he's rapping, he explodes. Come to find out that other kid that was hanging around with us was Jay-Z, which he told me his name, but I guess when you, when you uh, are an artist and people just exactly don't really know you, I was like, Oh, Jay-Z. Okay, cool. But now look at him. (laughs) But that was the kind of company that, uh, that we hung out with. And um, we played a lot of B-sides. and pepper they weren't hidden. They came out with a song called Tramp. I played the B-side. The B-side was push it, you know? Same thing with J.J. Fad. They had a a Supersonic, which was a B-side. I started playing that, exploded. So I played a lot of B-sides and album cuts. Stuff Radio didn't, and still doesn't to this day, uh, really do. Because when you do stuff like that, you, you've got to have a blessed ear, which I always had. I can pick what's going to be a hit. I'm, I'm really good at that. I can't make a hit. A lot of people don't know I was actually signed to Motown and MCA Records. And I didn't sell hardly anything. Uh, even though I wasn't singing or rapping, it was a compilation project. But, uh, you know, these guys, uh, I don't know. They're just so talented. I get so uh, excited just talking about them.
0: Right, and also at this time, it was where everything that was coming out of New York was getting played out West and everywhere else. But it will be a rarity up until like around 91, 92, when Dre, Snoop and everything out of the West Coast started going on nationally, that you would hear a West Coast artist. Because the other day I was listening to an air check from an old urban station out of Baltimore, V-103, from 1987, Mm -hmm. they were playing uh, Freakaholic by Egyptian Lover. And I was like, that's rare for 1987 to have a West Coast record get play West East of the Mississippi.
1: Yeah, the uh, East Coast, West Coast is definitely, um, at that time, we would play East, West, North, South. I didn't care where you was from. I didn't really look at a record and say oh that's east coast i'm not gonna play it i would listen to it i'd listen to every piece of product that came out back then and if it fit with what we were doing i didn't care where it was from now that being said on the east coast and i kind of get it because new york is a different vibe than la i mean we all know that and so the vibe there uh there was a gentleman by frankie crocker Frankie Crocker was pretty much ruling New York, you know, and he had his own vibe going on and that's what people were into. And what we were doing on the West coast didn't exactly fit in that vibe. And so it took probably till the late to early nineties before the East coast started to accept some of the uh, West coast music. And, uh, and they still don't, you know, really accept a lot of it, but some of our artists have become so powerful that they can't ignore it either.
0: Right. Like I mentioned, when Dr. Dre, Snoop, later on Warren G, Nate Dogg, everything that was coming out of Death Row pretty much took the West Coast culture, primarily South Central L.A., and just took Mm -hmm. it worldwide. Because that's the first thing everybody outside of L.A. thinks of when you think of L.A., the whole lowriders, khakis, Dre and, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. all of the artists that came from Dr. Dre like Snoop, Eminem, Fifty, Kendrick, Lamar, Game.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, these uh, this new breed is just really fantastic. Especially Kendrick, I, I think Kendrick has taken it to a whole nother level. Um, but there's there's a lot of talent out here on the West Coast. I'm hearing some of the stuff that's getting ready to drop. It's 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 getting get competitive, <laughs> you know. But these guys, uh, you know, I would like, I hope that they'll start making some music that you can still dance to. Some of the stuff that you hear on the radio now, you can't really bounce to it. You can't slow dance to it. You know, uh, it's, it, it's not really saying anything other than how much money I got. Uh, I don't know, because I know that when I was growing up and I would be playing, you know, Cameo and you know, Funkadelic, you know, all that stuff. My mom was like, turn that stuff off. Don't nobody want to hear that. Put some Al Green on, put some Aretha on. That's real music. So I'm real aware of the fact that as you get older, your taste (laughs) is not the same. So still trying to understand. I will sit and listen to... You know the newest rap stuff coming out and you know trying to understand and i think that's what people have to do but see i'm a music lover i just like music i like i started in rock and roll and country and western that was my beginnings and uh you know i like every type of music
0: yeah because i agree because i'm a musical sponge myself listen to everything you don't want to end up like that progressive commercial we're just like our parents you- <laughs> our tag team. I wouldn't mind being tag team right now. They're getting paid. Yeah, that's why writing and publishing is very important. Now, how tough was it to sell K-Day to advertisers with it being on an AM stick and the demographic that K-Day was targeting knowing that advertisers tend to shy away from the team demo because they don't really have this yet.
1: Well, it's a good point. And we did have some trouble uh, getting advertisers. My whole thing, when you go into a station and you're turning it around, it's best to go straight at the teens, which is what I did. The teens, you know, they they'll flip. They don't have any loyalty. <laughs> they will switch a station in a heartbeat. The adults, you know, you like what you like and you usually stick over on that station. Uh, but, our teen numbers became so big that the parents had to listen. So when you get the kids in the car and they're controlling the radio and the parents are like, Oh, this ain't so bad. You know, I kind of like this. And plus you have to understand because they were sampling, the parents were already familiar with the beat. And so uh, it did start to expand and the, uh, the adults did pick up on it. I mean, we would only go up so far. I would say, uh, our audience was like 12 to 34, 35, 35, Obviously, there was some times where it was more, but that was probably the core. Also, what a lot of people would be surprised to know is that for that format, the uh, hip-hop rhythmic format, uh, the majority of my listeners, and still to this day, uh, the majority of my listeners are Hispanics and uh, always have been. Now, I would say it's pretty pretty close with Blacks. Uh, Hispanics are usually around the 44 share uh, whereas Blacks are uh, 42 share. So it's, you know, it's neck and neck, but I've I've always appreciated a lot of Hispanic support.
0: And can you explain to those that are not familiar with what a share is?
1: A share is a ratings term. Uh, but, you know, most people are familiar with a share. It's like a, a candy bar. So you're gonna eat that? Okay, well, you take that half. That's that's a 50 percent share okay so I'll put it in terms that you can understand but in radio terms that that means the same thing it's a share of your audience and so if you broke if you broke down the share of the people that listened to me uh, it was always uh, uh, mostly Hispanic mainly because la is mostly Hispanic you have to understand la is probably 50 to 60 percent Hispanic and so we we received a lot of support and the African-american community uh, obviously they're going to support us we're you know, playing what they uh, really want to hear. So, you know, the highest ratings ever had by any radio station in Los Angeles ever was on Saturdays when we would do our mix show, the Mix Masters. You could go on Hollywood Boulevard and open your windows and it sounded like one big stereo, people playing 1580 K-Day, white, black, Hispanic, everybody was bumping the station and it was just something like out of a movie. I, I've never seen anything like that. And it had a 22 share in Los Angeles. That is a lot of people.
0: Wow. That is crazy. And, um, and you guys were killing it in the ratings so much. that I'm sure KJLH and all the other urban stations around LA had to counter program to what you guys doing to try to maybe take some of your audience.
1: Yeah, we. Uh, it took me about 90 days. We were number five when I got here out of the five black stations. In about 90 days, we were number two, probably one-tenth of a share behind KJLH, who we never beat. That was Stevie Wonder station. Whenever we got close to them in the ratings, they would play a couple of rap records and uh, play them during the day. And so people would kind of stay over there, you know? They were pretty smart about it. They didn't play a lot of rap, but they would play just whatever our biggest hits were, and, uh, and kind of keep us at bay. But they had a lot more adult numbers, and the adults didn't want to hear all of that whoop-de-whoop music, as they would call it. And so, uh, you know, the adults would stay over there, the kids would stay with us, but there was, you know, some people that liked both that would switch back and forth. But the other stations, we kind of took them out right away. KGFJ, Cute, K-Ace, uh, you know, they had their following, and I had good friends still do have good friends at all of those radio stations. Very nice. It was a friendly competition. It wasn't like in Houston. In Houston, we had a war. (laughs) We had a radio war, but in LA, everybody was really cool.
0: Right now, speaking of Houston, uh, did you ever go toe-to-toe with the box?
1: No, the box wasn't even there yet. Um, The box came many years later. Uh, Our competition when I was at Magic 102 was a station called Love 94. And Love 94 was, I mean, we were battling. We, we would actually make appearances at the same nightclub on the same night. And as DJs, we'd get up on the mic and just take turns uh, uh, dogging the other station, talking about their mom and their sister. But it was it was done in fun, you know? I'd look over at the other DJ and talk about his mama or his wife or something, and he'd just fall out, and then he'd get up and talk about me. You know, it was no, it was no ill feelings. And then, on the air, we'd talk about each other on the air. I mean, it was a war. that's a radio war, and uh we ended up winning the war uh but you know they were a very good station. Don't get me wrong. We were going you know toe to toe
0: and was this time in Houston was this pre rap a lot
1: pre- rap a lot absolutely. The only uh rap label at the time was Sugar Hill Records. And you had uh, profiles starting to get in the game with Run DMC, and uh, uh, you know Curtis Blow, you know was uh, let's see, I think he was Polygram, I think.
0: Uh, Mercury. But that I was
1: think. that. Mercury. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it was the division. Mm-hmm. So, the the you didn't have a lot, you know, going on uh, as far as the. Uh, majors with uh, rap artists it was all independent at that time you also had tommy boy that was the other one i was trying to think of tommy boy records had the johnson crew out pack jam you know that was the jam back then so a lot of the stuff that you're talking about yeah they were very relevant but they did come uh much later probably in the later 80s
0: Yeah, because I think Rap-A-Lot didn't come out until, I believe, 86. That was when Jay Prince Mm -hmm. put out the first incarnation of Ghetto Boys with Car Freaks and then later reformed Mm -hmm. uh, Scarface, Willie D, Rest in Peace Bushwick Bill, and had their Mm -hmm. success. Now, when you will go to these conventions, such as Jack the Rapper, B.R.E., and you're meeting up with different MDs and PDs from across the country, would you guys kind of sit and swap notes, or was it like keep them at arms and them. Cause you don't want to see what they're doing, even though they're not in your market.
1: You know uh, that was one thing I never feared is I would tell people what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. If they ask, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, my mother makes the best cakes in the world and she sits there and she tells me the ingredients, but they never taste like her cakes, you know? And so with programming, I can sit there and tell you, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm doing it. You should do this. You should try that. But if you just don't know the right, you know, ingredients, how to place them and you didn't know that you were supposed to, you know, just do this, don't do that. I mean, the, I can tell you, it's almost like, let me put it in today's world, uh, Tesla, uh, uh Elon Musk, he actually gave out, uh, the information on how to build an electric car. How to, how to build the battery, but still to this day, I mean, they're starting to catch up, but they still really can't compete with what he's doing, so uh, back then, I could tell you, and I've had programmers call me, the conventions weren't really to go there and learn, I'm going to tell you like that, the conventions were to go there and hang out and unwind, sit around and bag on each other, get drunk, go party, have fun, uh, it was more like a, a reunion than anything to learn from, yeah, there were some business relationships developed, but those were far and in between.
0: Right. And Bre means Black Radio Exclusive. And there's a book mm-hmm. about uh, Jack the Rapper called Mellow Yellow. And I'm gonna tell you, read it because some of the stories in that book we definitely cannot share here. And all I'm gonna say is boy, walls. If walls <laughs> provide
1: yeah, Jack the Rapper was a classic. He uh, they just don't make him like him anymore. I have a lot of respect for him.
0: Right. And like how you mentioned earlier about you would openly tell other programmers, this is what I'm doing. And that was the thing that I really miss about Radio Before Consolidation, the telecom, at, is how you would have your base. But depending on what market you were in, the playlist would vary. It would be different from what would be at WJLB in Detroit or WKYS in D.C., or WJMH out of Greensboro or WQOK out of Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. So there was a wide variety because nobody's playlist was alike because cuts varied from market to market, what was popular.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. And uh, it's like that today because, you know, like I was saying earlier, there's a different vibe in every city. You know, Atlanta's got that dirty South sound. You know, Miami's still got that, techno sound and you know everybody's got Chicago's got their own little sound Uh, and there's nothing wrong with it it's just different cities have different vibes thank god could you imagine going to every city and have the same music uh but yeah you're absolutely right everybody kind of had their own sound and that was starting to pop up you know even when I was at 1580k day I developed relationships with a producer named Pretty Tony out of uh, Florida who was putting out some really good techno stuff uh I ran into the guys that were doing, you know, the rap a lot and stuff down in Houston with the ghetto boys. And uh, you know, a lot of those people I knew from when I was there. And at the same time I was still had my relationships going on with the funk scene out of Dayton, Ohio with, you know, zap and uh, uh, Ohio players and, and, and all of those people. So every, every area, that's why Motown had their sound, you know, everybody has a sound.
0: Now, what was your criteria when looking Mm. for jocks for K-Day? Because we can go down the list of all the great personalities that came through K-Day, including a young Russ Mm. Parr, who was doing his thing as a comedy parody artist with Bobby Jimmy and the Critters.
1: You know, I only hired one DJ there, uh, Jack Patterson, who was my boss. He did all the hiring. And uh, I hired Lisa Canning but the other guys, Russ, uh, Steve Woods, the late Steve Woods, JJ um, Johnson, you know, these people are already there. These were people that I was reading about when I was coming up. I always wanted to be like JJ Johnson. You know, every time you open a the BRE Magazine and sometimes Jet Magazine, you saw JJ hanging out with Michael Jackson or, you know, somebody big. And I was like, oh my God, I want to be like JJ. But there was a lot of talent that came through uh, 1580 K-Day. It didn't start when I got there. It started back in the 60s. But, uh, you know, it was doing something different. It was more more pop, more top 40. Uh, When I got there, it was kind of a cross between, uh, you know, top 40 and urban. And I switched it. I didn't really have a name for it, for what I was doing. But like I said, it became known as uh, CHR Rhythmic.
0: Wow. So as what we would know, turban and this was way before mm-hmm. uh, Hot 103 in New York, which later went down, mm-hmm. down to Hot 97, which had a Churban format up until, I believe, 92, because that was when Steve Smith out of Phoenix, who did consultant work, switched it to pure hip hop.
1: Steve Smith, uh, all due respect, was a cookie cutter programmer. Now, what Steve Smith was doing was taking what we had done, and then he would just you know, copy and paste, so to speak, in different markets. Now, as a black man, I could have did the same thing. I could have went into these cities, but you have to understand that uh, owners of radio stations, if a white man was doing it, it was pretty cool. It was pretty hip but all he was doing was taking what I had created, copying and pasting in different cities. Steve Smith looked like a hero. He's the great savior to this format. And I look at it and I'm like, oh my Lord. Uh, but there was a lot of talent. There still is a lot of talented black programmers that just never was given that opportunity that maybe white programmers uh, were given. And it's okay, you know, It's <laughs> We have to be, as in every part of life, not just radio, you know, two to three times better. And so, uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that there will be some young Greg Max coming up that'll get the opportunities that maybe uh, we didn't, and also that some of these owners will realize that, uh, just like uh, Elvis and a lot of the other rock people that came up, that were basically doing black music and uh, because they were white and crossing over they made way more money than the people that originated it and so it's the same it's the same theory don't get me talking about that I I could go on hours and hours about that but I don't I'm not mad about it it's like whatever you know you do what you got to do but for you to say Steve Smith and we the people that know kind of look at him like oh my god you know all he did was take what we did and just went and copied it over in another city and it exploded and it went to number one. And uh, we didn't get the opportunity to do that. That's what we look at.
0: Right. We definitely got to have diversity at all levels because going back and listening to old air checks from the sixties and seventies of top 40 stations, if you look at them, it will be all lily white and how some of them would have their advertisers come into the stations to make sure that there were None of us in the
1: booth. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't so much Lily White because they played a lot of Motown. The Jocks were Lily White. (laughs) You know, you could see black DJs on a black station, but we couldn't be on a pop station. We couldn't be on a rock station. Even today, how many DJs? How many black DJs do you know on a rock station? You know, I grew up on rock. I could easily be a rock DJ, but and you sure as hell don't hear too many on country western radio. Nope. So. Uh, you know, white jocks, they have more opportunities. We're labeled. And so we are, you know, segregated. And that's just not the case,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. So can we talk about the importance of Uncle Jam's Army? Uncle Jam's Army was ruling the streets of LA before I ever
1: got here. And they were one of the biggest DJ promoter groups, uh, I think, in history. You know, they uh, were doing a place called LA Sports Arena when I got here and held, they would have anywhere from 10 to 12,000 kids in there dancing to just DJs. There was no entertainers. It was just DJs in there playing. They had, you know, Bobcat, Egyptian Lover, uh, Battle Cat, and, you know, several other guys that were just so talented. I mean, these guys were on a whole nother level. And Uncle Jam's army was ruling. Uh, I've never seen that many kids in one place dancing to a DJ. And they used to do it all the time. Uncle Jam's Army. Uh, Rest in peace, Roger Clayton. And uh, much respect to those guys. Everybody that was uh, a part of Uncle Jam's Army.
0: Yeah, like if you listen to cuts, like, yes, yes, yes. Dollar Freak, very high energy, almost very disco-ish. Because if you listen to, like we mentioned, Mm world-class record crew earlier, like the Cabbage Patch, all those records had that high energy bounce. It kind of sounded like a cross between dance, disco, and a little bit of what Prince was doing.
1: Exactly. And, and a lot of what Prince was doing. <laughs> Egyptian Lover, uh, you know, certainly was uh, a huge fan of Prince at uh, the time. Jesse Johnson, you know, if you listen to Free World, you hear you know, Egypt's, uh, music. Uh, and that, and that was the business, you know, a lot of people, and I always tell people, let's go back to radio and they say, well, how do I become a good sounding DJ? I always say, imitate your favorite DJ, whoever your favorite DJ is, imitate him, get his style or her style down to a T and then forget about it and create your own style, create your own style from that. So I was always imitating Rick Dees. You know, I just thought Rick Dees was, you know, one of the best DJs on the radio. So I tried to imitate him as best I could. And then after I thought I imitated him, you know, as about as good as I could get, then I totally forgot his style and created my own style, but you got to create a style. And that's how you create a style by creating, by copying somebody that is, you know, your favorite.
0: Mm-hmm. And with world-class and Crew stuff has been sampled over the years famously, Turn Off the Lights Backgrounds, I believe was done by Michelle Lay in Masterpiece sample, Turn Off the Lights for Ice Cream Man.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, uh, actually before all of those, there was a song and I forget the name of it, but yeah, uh, I would say in the eighties, most everything you heard a rapper do there, it was a sample. <laughs> there was not a lot of originality uh until you know later in the 80s yeah you had people like uh rick rubin who's probably one of the greatest uh producers in my opinion in hip-hop of all time you also had locally the dust brothers you had dj mugs you know uh working with cypress hill that had a different sound um you know there was a lot of talented guys creating that sound
0: yeah, and just recently on the podcast, I had DJ Cut Creator He was talking about, I believe it was the Raising Hell tour with uh, Run DMC, and it was a
1: mm-hmm.
0: performance out in LA and I guess it was where some gangs met up and there was a big hoo-ha, and it was covered recently in the Hip Hop Uncovered documentary which aired on FX. You could catch it on Hulu with uh, Big U and all of those guys talking about that, and then K-Day had I believe was it kind of sort of like a public affairs special kind of show talking about it and having the gang leaders call and have them cease. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was run DMC. And, uh, also one of the first friends I made when I moved to LA, uh, the late Barry white. So we had Barry white and run DMC. A lot of people don't know. Barry white used to be a gang member. He used to run the streets and, uh, you know, we got on and talk some real stuff, you know, all day long. It was a brainchild of our general manager, Ed Kirby, and Jack Patterson. They said, hey, look, we need to stop the music. We got to talk about this. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that night of that uh, historic concert, I was on stage introducing the next group. And all of a sudden, bloop, it's like, what the heck? And I look back and there's a body laying on stage. <laughs> somebody had thrown somebody over, you know, I don't know where it came from. All I heard was the loud thump. Uh, amazingly, the guy didn't die, but he sure looked at. Uh, and when that happened, that's when all hell broke loose. I'd never seen nothing like it. And I was, I had guests there. I was trying to get the security to say, hey, man, you got to help me get out of here. Dude pulled off his security shirt. He's like, man, I quit. <laughs> so all the security quit and you were left to fend for yourself. It was not a pretty scene.
0: Mm, and you gotta remember, folks, back in the mid-80s, it was a rarity for a rap show, a complete rap show, to get a venue because venues wouldn't give promoters the insurance for the venue. So that's why, if you notice a lot of the early rappers, they went on tour with mm-hmm. RBX because that was kind of their back door into the venue
1: that was the late 80s for the long beach thing but yeah you're right uh the insurance even today you know you can get it but it's like way higher than a rock and roll or a jazz or country show they put a high high amount on it
0: mm, still has you know, which that is why sticking.
1: which is which is why tickets you know people might say oh wow tickets are high well they got to cover that high high insurance there's all kinds of extra things you got to do at uh uh, Hip hop shows.
0: Mm. So, uh, with the Mixed masters, did you have a set list of who's going to do the Mixed master show this week, or how did that go come about?
1: Yeah, I had uh, you know my main core guys, Tony, uh, uh, Henji, Jam and Gemini, Joe Cooley, and then we you know what would happen with our guys is that people. The rappers liked them so much that they'd take them on tour. So I started losing guys. Every time I turn around, one of my guys is on tours. So we started having competitions and bringing in more guys uh, throughout the years. But we kept a pretty tight circle. It was kind of an uh, elite organization for DJs. It's like, if you became a mix master, you made it if you were a DJ. And so we were real selective on, uh, on who we allowed in. You know, they had to really be good and they had to really be uh, in check on their, on their ego. You know, we didn't want people that were, you know, uh, you know, not nice people and also people that really wanted to, to do something for the community. That was real important to me always.
0: Right. Community is very important. Now, what were some of the big community events that K-Day would do. Would y'all do toys, coat drives for kids and feeding people around Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving and Christmas?
1: Yeah, we do all that. All the radio stations do that. But what we would do, like sometimes I would go to high schools early in the morning and you know how they had the school announcements. It would be Mm -hmm. me making the announcement. Uh, We had a, uh, almost every day, thanks to our uh, unbelievable uh, promotion guy, Rory Kaufman, he had us in schools almost every day during the noon hour. And our street team was unparalleled. Just to give you an example of the kind of people on our street team, we had LL Cool J. We had uh, Public Enemy, Ice-T, NWA, Young MC, Tone Lope. I mean, a list that goes forever of people. that These are people that we're taking out to the kids at lunchtime. You know, uh, so it was powerful stuff, man. And uh, uh, we had a group of breakdancers and pop lockers. And we tied in with that. We started getting all the breakdancers, breakdance boards. We were giving those out. So we were really involved uh, almost daily. And even on the weekends, we didn't really get a lot of rest. But I
0: didn't mind because I love being out with people. I absolutely love it. Right, because the streets are the lifeline for a radio station. The people make the station because I can remember being a big deal for me whenever I would listen to the radio and I would get through on the request line and then hear myself calling the request line and recording it with a tape for those of you that are too young to remember cassette tapes, Google it, but it was just very special. And being at that age, just thinking like, man, I'm on the coolest radio station in town. And it's even mm-hmm. better if you got a chance to maybe sit in for 10, 15 minutes or so to maybe do a line or read or what have you. And some kids probably said, because of that moment, I wanted to get into this business.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, we did, you know, inspire a lot of up and coming uh, people. Uh, I know I have because they call me or they email me or they write me and tell me. And I appreciate that. It means a lot. It means way more than, than you know when people do stuff like that. It lets you know that you did make a difference, that you did change somebody's life or improve somebody's life, that you did it not because you were trying to get at them for some particular reason, but because you really wanted to see them make it. And that was the way I always looked at it. I, I really did want to see other people successful. I was never unhappy because you became a billionaire and I didn't. I don't roll like that. Like, I'm happy. I just felt like I was I was happy to be a part of it and to kind of know who you were uh, before you blew up and now you don't take my calls. I just wanted to know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that you were successful. And so uh, I think one of the rap artists that I always admired so much, Nelly, <laughs> Nelly. I always admired Nelly because Nelly, uh, the guy, the DJ in St. Louis that played his record before nobody else believed in him, Nelly went And gave that guy half a million dollars when he first had his first platinum record. When he had his second one, he went and gave another half a (laughs) million. I said, can you imagine if all these guys did the same thing with me? Yeah, I would be rich. But you know what? I feel that I am rich for knowing them. I feel that I am rich for being in a position. Because I tell people all the time, if those guys, if Dre and all of them didn't blow up, nobody would be checking for me. So I'm just happy that they blew up.
0: Right. And how did the Mac attack come about?
1: You know, when I first started in radio, uh, my radio name was Gregory Mac, because Gregory is my real first name. And so my program director, he said, uh, here's a couple of things I need you to work on. Uh, First of all, you sound, you know, like I can tell he was trying to figure out how to say it nicely. He said, but I can tell that you're black. If you're going to succeed in this business and you're going to be able to work anywhere that you want to work, you need to sound generic so that when you're on the radio, they can't really tell whether you're white or whether you're black or, you know, and I had to think about that. I was like, okay, now, what is he trying to say? In hindsight, he was telling me exactly what I needed to hear. Now, the other thing is, is Gregory Mac. he said, and then I want you to shorten that to Greg Mac. You're the Mac attack, the Mac attack, Greg Mac. Yeah, that's it. And so he gave me that name. It's a guy named Lee Randall. Harold Franzel was his real name. He uh, passed away last year. Now, he taught me everything that I know about, you know, programming and music. And he was very patient, man. Very nice, man. And uh, he's the one that came up with the Mac attack. Now, mind you, I should have trademarked that then because McDonald's wasn't using it then. <laughs> I think they might have heard it and took it and ran with it. But yeah, that was... Uh, That was how that all came about and i brought it to la and as i've gotten older i i don't hardly ever use mac attack anymore
0: right now how often did a lot of the artists from northern california come down to k-day to pump their stuff like too short e-40 uh hammer before he got his deal with capital
1: you know hammer uh was probably one of the first in the bay area and hammer would follow me Wherever we was doing an event, Hammer was there. Hey, man, listen to this. I got this, man. You got to listen to this, man. Watch this show. And I'm like, okay, Hammer. Okay, okay. He was hanging out with my people. And, you know, um, I think it took one time seeing him perform. And I was just like, okay, okay. He, he's got me. Uh, Too Short. I kind of found Too Short because I was hearing a lot about Too Short in the streets. His song, Freaky Tales. So I listened to it. I'm like, oh man, yeah, that's cool. You know, I wonder if there's a clean version. (laughs) So he did get us one. We played it. Uh, E40 came a few years later. It's kind of the same scenario. I had started hearing about him. A lot of the stuff, you know, artists were happening in the streets before it ever got to us. Uh, Toddy T was a prime example. Uh, Mm -hmm. I used to do a show on my show called The High Five, where I'd have kids from all the local area high schools come and count down the five most popular songs at their school. And these kids kept talking about Toddy T. We want bat on our high five. And I'm like, what the hell is that? Oh yeah, he sells them out his car. Tomorrow he's gonna be at so-and-so high school. So I actually went over to so-and-so high school and sure enough, he was parked out there with his trunk open selling cassettes. I said, man, I wanna play this song on the radio, bat And he was like, oh, cool, it's $5. (laughs) He didn't let me have it for free, you know? All right, man, here's your $5, you know? And uh, we started playing it. It exploded.
0: Right. Toddy T,
1: that was hilarious.
0: Yeah, Toddy T, Bataram. For those of you that don't know, look it up. YouTube, Google, Mm -hmm. talking about pretty much what the policy of policing was like in the mid-'80s and LA -hmm. under uh, Chief, former chief Daryl Gates.
1: Yeah, Daryl uh, kind of ruffled some feathers, you know, using that uh, bat uh thing, which, you know, thank God yeah. they quit doing that. Yeah,
0: that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. Now, did you have any interactions with uh, Jay King? Yeah,
1: talked to Jay King still. We're good friends. Jay King, I remember when he had first started, uh, and he used to come visit me at, at 1580 K-Day. And I say 1580 K-Day because there is another... Uh, K day in Los Angeles. It's not the same one, people. It is what I like to call a tribute station. But anyway, Jay King used to come by and visit. He was really cool. Uh, you know, he is another one that exploded. And you know, uh, I think Jay, uh, you know, was going through growing pains. I've always heard in this business that it's it's not you that changes. It's the people around you that change. The people around you start expecting you to wear certain clothes, to act a certain way, to, you know, they're always, they try and take on your life, okay? And so you're supposed to just sit there and be quiet, but you just got to be cognizant of the fact that just stay true to who you are. And so, you know, Back to your question. Yeah, Jay and I, we have a great relationship. Uh, I have a lot of admiration and respect for uh, what he did with Club Nouveau and Timex Social Club.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jay King, definitely a legend in the business. And you mentioned uh, Joe Cooley and he later partnered up with Rodney O and he put out records on Ichiban. So can we talk about Ichiban?
1: You know, I don't know a lot about Ichiban. I really mm-hmm. don't. Um, you know, Joe did a lot of things. Joe was on tour all the time. Uh, I did have a little uh record label. I put out one song on it. I'm actually thinking about reviving it. It was called Mac Daddy Records. And the one and only song I put out on there was called Bass by King T. And it exploded so big that Capitol Records just straight strong on me. <laughs> they straight strong on me and signed him to a contract. And I called him. I said, hey, you can't sign my artist. He signed to me. And uh, so Capital was like, well, just sue us. And I was like, oh, man, you know. So anyway, I ended up, uh, the guy that was president of Capitol Records, Step Johnson, uh, I called him. I said, hey, y'all stole my artist. What's going on here? Oh, man, hold on. I didn't know about that. So he called me back a few minutes later. He said, yeah, man, they said they really want him. But you know what? How much did you put into it? And I told him. And so he sent me three times that amount. He said, look, I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna give you that. You're gonna be cool? I said, hell yeah. He <laughs> said, come by and pick it up right now. <laughs> and so I went by and picked it up. And uh, within a day or two, I was on my
0: way to Hawaii. Right. King T at your own risk. Rap City used that for his theme for a couple of years. Now, also mm-hmm. right around the mid 80s, ice tea mm-hmm. had this record called six in the morning. Now, was that prior to Battle Ram, or was this after Battle Ram, six in the morning?
1: six in the morning was prior um you know and a lot of people say that was the first gangster rap record uh ice T when he did that song i wanted to play it but i was getting a lot of blowback from management because i had put it on the air and they said oh no you got to take that off you got to take that off and so they made me you know quit playing it uh i did talk him into it eventually but we we couldn't play it for a while and You have to understand, I I think that Ice-T is probably one of the most intelligent people in hip-hop. If you ever get a chance, talk to him. Ice-T is deep, (laughs) you know? And so uh, most of the stuff that he would come out with, I wanted to play it. But on that one, the station was like, "Uh, no, we're not going to play that.
0: Mm, Definitely a dope record. And if you listen to Six in the Morning and Boys in the Hood, very similar in sound.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, it had a very, uh, very uh, parallel message, I think is what you're trying to say. It had a, it had a parallel message?
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I believe it was '91 where the station got sold and they flipped to an all business format, correct?
1: Yeah, I went to KBLA. Um, you know, we—I knew when I got there in '83 that it was up for sale, but when the numbers started exploding and the the station started making a ton of money they backed up off of that but when uh our format started to fade in the late uh 80s because fm was catching on to what we were doing and you had power 106 popping up uh you know it started to go down and they could see the writing on the wall so they went ahead and sold it and i actually tried to buy it i just couldn't raise the money to to get it done but it became uh uh news uh financial talk type station, KBLA, Uh, and I had left before that happened to KJLH, I was working for Stevie Wonder.
0: So what was that like going over to KJLH and uh, working for Stevie?
1: You know what, it was fun at first, because they let me do whatever I wanted to do. But uh, because I tripled the ratings, they were not happy, and because they had to pay me a lot of bonuses as part of my contract, and they weren't happy about that. So they took me uh, out of my shift and put me on in a shift where I couldn't reach those bonuses again, which doesn't make sense. You want somebody's going to if you bring me a DJ, it's going to triple my ratings. Hell, yeah. But uh, they didn't see the, the humor of it. It was then when I uh, decided to start buying my own radio stations, which is what I did for about 20 years, bought and sold radio stations.
0: Yeah. Because- Matter of fact,
1: I'm getting ready to buy another one.
0: Wow. And for those you that don't know, if you hit those bonuses in the books or you hit your sales numbers, if you're a sales accountant, your check Mm -hmm. is going to look quite nice.
1: It was quite nice. (laughs) In the words of my old general manager, sell, sell, sell. There you go. It's all about the Benjamins, baby.
0: Yes, it is. Shout out to Diddy. Now, did you have any interactions with the late Chuck Johnson of Soul Beat? I did not. I was aware of him,
1: uh, but no, I, I never got to uh, the pleasure of meeting him.
0: Yeah, Soul Beat, for those of you that don't know, that was based out of Northern California, Oakland, and it was pretty much local programming where your mom and pop stores could have mm-hmm. advertising, and it went on the air, I believe, in 79, so a year before BT launched.
1: hmm that's correct. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And speaking yeah, I, of that, uh, go I got
1: ahead. to know uh, Don Cornelius... Uh, I did have the opportunity to to meet him a few times. And uh, obviously Arsenio Hall and, uh, you know, Arsenio, uh, I met him because if you remember, he did a rap thing called Chunky A. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) And so uh, we were talking about, I said, hey man, come by the station, I want to interview you. He said, are you playing my Chunky A song? I said, well, no, not yet. He says, well, when you do call me, (laughs) we'll see. You know, I thought that was hilarious. I did play it, but he never came to do my interview.
0: Well, wow. so you mentioned Don Cornelius. What was that like cuz I had a chance to interview several people that used to dance on Soul Train, and they would always mm-hmm. talk about how he was all business and when he walked in the room, he commanded respect.
1: Absolutely. Uh Don was really cool, you know. He was he was a cool guy, you know. Um I think that uh you know, he was pretty tough on people. But he wasn't tough on people because he was an a-hole. He was tough because he had a national show. And when you got a national show and you got deadlines and you know exactly what your vision is and you got somebody over here goofing off, you're going to get yelled at. So I had a lot of respect for him for, you know, cracking the whip. And uh, I would like to have seen him uh, be even bigger and, and still going on. But I guess, you know, with American Bandstand gone, Soul Train gone, I guess... You know, and there's really no dance music out there to dance to anyway. But uh, yeah, he he's a legend, and I just have nothing but respect for Don. There's a lot I could probably talk for the next hour about Don, but I'll just leave it at that.
0: Right. So, what was your take on, like how I mentioned earlier, when Dre and Snoop mm-hmm. broke nationally, everything out of Death Row was coming out. You know, Suge Knight and everything that came out of that. What was that like? seeing the West Coast finally break through where for so long, it was kind of like, we're fighting up against New York saying, hey, we get stuff too. And y'all gonna respect us out here on the West Coast.
1: You know, um, I'll let you ask that question to some of the artists. As a radio person, I didn't care. If y'all don't wanna play it, that makes me look even better, (laughs) you know? Uh, Obviously I would like to have seen them support the West Coast guys more. But because they didn't, you know, I'm looking more and more like a hero because I'm the only station in the United States playing this music. And, uh, you know, I I don't care what I there was no love lost. You know, I still remain friends with with all of those guys.
0: Mm, And I know there's a special subset of hip hop that's pretty much big and Southwest, US, and West Coast US, and that's Chicano rap, like with Mellow Mayonnaise, Kid Frost, Little Rob, and it's unique to that part of the country.
1: Uh yeah, you you have to understand that the Latin artists, I assume that's what you're talking about. Yes, sir. Uh these guys have their and still do have their uh uh loyal following, and uh you know, it's mostly, you know, Latinos, it's Latin music. Um, And which is, like I said earlier, that's the majority of my audience. So uh, let me try and explain what goes on with those guys is you have the northern part of California, the Norteño gang, you have the Sereno gang in the southern part of California, with the Latin groups, you know, the groups out of the south, unless you get permission, you can't even go up in uh, the Northern part of, of California to perform, they're very territorial, uh, in the, uh, Latin music scene. You can't go in certain areas without permission, even today. Mm, So so it was kind of hard for those guys to crack in certain areas.
0: Wow. So, so, so kind of like you got to get permission from the Don, so to speak.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say the Don, but they're, uh, You know, it's, it's, it's like blood and crip. You can't in LA, you, you can't be a blood and go perform in a crip area. Are you crazy? Uh, There were some occasions where you could ask permission and, and you were given a buy, but then after you finish, you go and get out of the area, (laughs) you know? Uh, And so it's like that with the Latin games. It's just like that on a bigger scale. Uh, You just know it and you respect it. And if you don't respect it, and I've seen it happen where they didn't respect it, then they got reminded when they got there
0: Mm, and we all know that reminder is and if you do perform in those areas have the band running
1: (laughs) the music business is a little more segregated than it needs to be it really it really is but you know i it's always been that way you just have to know and understand and and respect you know it's just the way it is
0: Mm, and i want to get your take on how has streaming changed broadcasting where kids now don't understand the concept of waiting 15, 20 minutes for a record where I can go straight on my phone or computer is right there at my disposal?
1: Well, radio is still strong. 95% of all people still listen to the radio. Um, HBO, when it came on, everybody's like, oh no, that's going to kill all the local channels. It didn't. You know, CNN came on, all the news channels are going to be dead. Uh, All it did was make the pie bigger. And so in this case, Pandora, Spotify, XM Sirius, all of these online streamings, all of the uh, little online radio stations, which I support 100%, uh, people doing their own radio stations online. But all of these things, all it's done is made the pie bigger. And so I don't see radio ever being... Uh, affected in my lifetime it may be down the road but i don't think so in my lifetime everybody no matter what you get in the car you usually turn on the radio now you may not stay on the radio but you you go to the radio and, and it's about that localism you know it's about that feel because in today's streaming world you can really listen to any station that streams you could get in your car in la and listen to bls in new york on your way in but <clears throat> it's still radio so 95% of the people, these other, when I want to let my mind escape a little bit, you know, I'll put on XM series or Pandora or something, but I still come back to radio, not just because that's what I do, but it just has, it just makes you feel warm and comfortable, you know?
0: Right. And it's definitely funny how my age range, 35 and under, so to say, we are in that Urban AC or AC category, depending on what format you're trying to target. And how I remember Mm in the 90s as a kid, you could tell an urban AC station because in their liners or sweepers, they would make sure to emphasize no rap. Whereas now, Mm -hmm. you got no choice but to play (laughs) rap because we're that demographic (laughs) now.
1: Yeah, you can't alienate any type of music, whether it's rap or anything. You know, uh, uh, the thing in the Uh, early to mid eighties before radio consolidation with the big companies buying up all the radio stations, everybody, every station was a mom and pop. You were only allowed to have, you know, one FM, one AM. So everybody was going after each other. You weren't targeting a certain age group. You were targeting all groups. And so that was when radio was fun. And then as consolidation began and you'd have one group owning five or six radio stations, and so that's when they started to target the okay this station is going to go after the teens this station is going to go after the 18 to 34 women this one the 18 to 34 men this one the 35 to 54 you know and so it, it got real fragmented so you listen to radio you kind of flip around and you you know you know you know what your what your vibe is and not only that but you, when you're doing that, people understand that the average person only listens to radio 20 minutes a day. I don't care what you say. If you listen to radio more than 20 minutes a day, you're not an average listener. And so they will play the same 40 songs over and over and over because they want you when you turn on and during those 20 minute period that you hear your favorite song, you know, and so you just get burned out on it. And so I don't think that consolidation has been good for radio at all. Uh, I would like to see it get back to where it's individual owners. It never will, of course, but it's even beginning to get, you know, it's, it's beginning to become a network. I think that's where radio is going. Just like you have ABC, CBS, NBC, you're going to have a different radio group that owns a network and you're going to hear the same jocks all over the country. Mm. And uh, I think that'll be sad for radio.
0: Yeah. And you kind of sort of hear that now with the advent of voice tracking, where you can have a jock in Tacoma, Washington, voice tracking for a station in Nashville or jock in Detroit, mm-hmm. voice tracking for a station out of Waco, Texas. It's all about a way to save money. And I look at it as pre-consolidation with radio. If you wanted to get into business, that was the way to kind of cut your teeth doing the overnight spot at the small to medium market station before moving up to a major market. You don't really get mm-hmm. that process of getting your reps in before you go to a big city.
1: Exactly. There you go. And it's it's you know what you're saying is like you know the farm team. You know, just like the NBA has the the G League or D League or whatever it is, uh, and the baseball has the farm team with radio. Uh, once it becomes like that, yeah, there's going to be less opportunity for people to get on and, you know, uh, get get their skills uh, up. So you're absolutely right.
0: Mm, and I was curious if you knew the programming strategy behind a lot of urban stations in the early 80s to like around, I want to say, 86, 87, when rap started to get more inclusive in the playlist other than just being regulated to nights and weekends, how a lot of urban stations would play, let's say, a Phil Collins minute work, Madonna record, something that had a little bit of an urban leaning, but it was pop. Do you think that was because they wanted to kind of broaden their demographic, get some of that pop demo?
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, depending on the market, if you are in a market where there is a majority of white people, you've got to do that to compete. You've got to, you know, mix in uh, with the music that you just said. Uh, but I think what people will find is that uh, all races love some good r and All races love some good hip hop. Uh, I think that sometimes you can overthink yourself, and when you put in a lot of the music trying to capture a certain race. You can overthink yourself and go a little bit over, you know, those people love R&B. That's why they're tuning in to you.
0: Mm-hmm. Music is music regardless, because I can remember a lot of pop acts when they would come out on the West Coast, they would do acts with rap and R&B acts. And it's all where we're all listening to the same thing.
1: There you go. We're all in the same game.
0: Yep, we're all in the same game now. I want to close out on this. Can we talk about any current projects you got?
1: Well, we're in the the the. God, in the beginning stages of a documentary about, you know, a lot of the stuff that you and I just talked about, and then some. We go a little bit deeper in the documentary, uh, and that should be out. I'm gonna guess next year. It should have been out this year, but because of the pandemic. We've had to, obviously, a lot of people were saying, hey, uh, I want to be a part of this, but I I don't feel comfortable having camera crew come over here. So we're having to wait, you know. So it's going to slow us up. It'll probably be out next year. Following that, there will be a uh, docu-series uh, that will tell the story a little bit more. Sometime during that, there will be a book uh, because I want to get the history right. There is so much misinformation about the history of 1580 K-Day and the history of, uh, you know, what I did at, at, at the station. So I want to get the book out. And hopefully one day before I go visit my maker, I will will get a uh, some kind of theatrical film. But right now, those are the things that are in the pipeline. And I'm going to, you know, like I said earlier, start my record
0: label back up. So I'm pretty busy 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 that's the best way to be so be on the lookout for those cr- projects when they drop you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this interview and also plug your social media
1: shout out to everybody and i'm on facebook greg mack show or greg mack uh instagram greg mack show you can email me at greg at gmail.com call me anytime 8554 greg Mac. uh and you know, we're we're all over the place. All you gotta do is just hit Greg Mac, Google Greg Mac, and you'll see all the different places. We're on a lot of different radio stations. We have every time we're on on the weekends, we have between eight and ten million listeners tuned in. So uh we have fun.
0: Right. So check them out on all those platforms. You can catch this interview wherever you stream your podcast. Apple, anchor, spotify, stitcher, tune in, YouTube for the video portion, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And you can go to my brand new website at beyondthealbumcover.wordpress.com. You can find it all there. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give this man his flowers. Mr. Greg Mack, 1580 <laughs> AM Stereo K-A-Y. Mr. Matt, thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, man.
0: No problem.